It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 sad traps, to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom David was one, to whom these sad traps should give accounts that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became dis dis distinguished above all other high officials and sad traps because of an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And then the high officials and the sad traps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and sad traps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the sad traps, the counsellors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning this injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, paid no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distress, distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians. That is no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your kingdom, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid out on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might change, be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den, den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. 
And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to no end, till the end. He delivers and rescues, he works, signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, and he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Thank you, Danny. Good morning. Let me ask you this morning, why do Christians talk about salvation so much? Kids, have you noticed this? Perhaps it's your parents, uh, or perhaps you go to a Christian school, uh, or maybe you, you, you notice it in the songs that we sing, or what I say when I preach and, and you guys are in uh, with us. Was that a rhetorical question? I'm not sure. Why do we do it? Why is it that Christians talk about salvation so much? Well, perhaps the most obvious answer is because we know that we need to be saved. We recognize that, as the Bible says, we have all fallen short of God's glory. Meaning that even though we are made in God's image, we all choose instead to live in disobedience to God and therefore deserve the consequences of that disobedience. And so when you know that that is the state of your soul, and you know that there is nothing that you can do yourself in order to prevent that from happening, then of course... Your natural instinct is going to be to cry out, just as Paul did, O wretched man that I am, O wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But there is a problem. How do I know that my faith is saving faith? Especially when life is the pits. Can I trust him in that? Will I trust him in that? And how can I be sure that God will actually deliver me from the pit? This morning, we're going to look at how Daniel trusted in the Lord for salvation and what that means for us today. We're going to look at that uh, through three headings. Firstly, trust in the face of opposition. Secondly, trust in the face of death. And thirdly, trust because God saves. So with our Bibles and notepads and our heads and our hearts open, let us come to his word this morning. And as we do that, how about I pray? Our Heavenly Father, the King of Heaven, I thank you for your word. And thank you that your word speaks to us. We ask that your Holy Spirit might illuminate its truths and change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's begin with the first heading, Trust in the Face of Opposition. So to reorient you from last week, Daniel chapter 5 fast-forwarded a few decades uh, from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar to the reign of Belshazzar and told us the story of God's judgment to Belshazzar through the writing on the wall. And that finished with God's judgment being carried out on Belshazzar and him being killed on the night of, that the Persian Empire took over Babylon. And Darius the Mede became the new king over the Babylonian kingdom. By this stage, Daniel is an old man. He's perhaps uh, even 80 years old. Children, do you know anyone who's 80 years old or older? Yeah, that, I, that's pretty old, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... No, no offense to any 80-year-olds in the room. Ninety-three. Now that that is, or eighty-three. Well, there's a big difference between those two, but either way, they're both pretty old, isn't that right, Connor? Yeah. So Daniel, he is roughly, uh, potentially even this age. It's and it's incredible to think that he has spent his entire life in exile. You know, it's possible that from the time that he was brought in at the beginning of the book in Daniel chapter 1, he was a mere teen, that he never actually got to see his homeland again. He's in all of those many decades. And so chapter 6 begins by telling us about Darius organizing his kingdom. These uh, satraps, which we saw in chapter 3, were basically uh, local governors over a region of the kingdom known as satrapies. Daniel is given a position of high authority among all of these officials. He is one of the top three. I mean, that's at least COO or CFO, one of those two. It could very well be that the position that Belshazzar gave him in chapter 5, at the end of that chapter, continued on into his time in the Persian kingdom. Once again, as we've come to expect from Daniel, he stood out among the crowd. Now notice how verse 3 describes Daniel as having an excellent spirit. The ESV doesn't capitalize spirit there because it's likely just talking about Daniel's general godly character. But it would be certainly true that uh, that such character comes from God's Holy Spirit. But verse 3 also tells us the thing which would trigger the events of this chapter. You see it there. And the king plans to set him over the whole kingdom. All right. The king plans to set him over the whole kingdom, which is, which is to say, aside from the king, there would be none higher than Daniel. Well, when you've got a bunch of people who all want that big promotion and they don't like the guy who gets it, especially considering that he's not even a native Persian, well, that's just asking for trouble. If you've read the book of Esther, there are many parallels between Esther and Daniel chapter 6. This sounds a lot like Haman's attitude towards Mordecai. Verses 4 and 5 are worth reading in full. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful 
and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Kids, do you know, do you know somebody who is like just the... You don't have to tell me, all right? I don't want you, <laughs> I don't want you to name them. The, the person who is like the teacher's pet, you know, the, the one who just does everything right and perfectly. Do you know someone like that? Are you someone like that? <laughs> right? That's effectively Daniel. Okay, there's, there, you can find no fault in him. There is, there is nothing that you can point to and say, look what he did over there. There's, there's no dirt, there's no skeleton in his closet that you can get out to sort of have, have something against him. Brothers and sisters, does this describe you? Consider Daniel's standing. His excellent spirit was so evident to everybody and notable that the king was ready to promote him to the highest position. And then when those who opposed him tried to find a way to bring him down, tried to find some kind of dirt that they could get on him, they knew that they would not be able to do it unless, unless it had something to do with his faith. And then not only that, but they knew that his faith was something that he would not compromise in. They knew that if they went after that, even if he was threatened with death, he would not give it up. Does this describe you? This is surely only going to become increasingly important for us as Christians as society increasingly views us not as just nice, harmless people with a kind of good-for-you faith, but as people whose faith is actually harmful to our society. Steve McAlpine, the title of one of his books is Being the Bad Guys. And the title, the cover has good crossed out and bad written over the top of it. Are you the kind of employee that your co-workers and your bosses love to have, even if they find elements of your faith offensive? Brothers and sisters, I'm not setting this up as something to make you feel guilty and condemned about. But it is definitely something worth reflecting on and asking God to grow us in by His grace. After all, what what hope do we have in engaging our friends and colleagues in the public square if our lives do not display an excellent spirit? What things might there be in your day-to-day workings right now that do not radiate such a spirit? Are you quarrelsome with others? Do you only do the bare minimum of work? Do you join in or perhaps even lead the grumbling and complaints against your superiors? I know that over the span of my life, I have been guilty of those things more than once. Let us humble ourselves before the Lord and seek His gracious working in our lives so that His Spirit might grow within us a notable, excellent Spirit. 
Well, Daniel's opponents predictably concoct a plan and they bring it before the king. Notice what they say there in verse 7. All the high officials. It would not surprise me at all if you've heard this kind of thing before. Everyone is thinking this. Everyone wants you to know. These officials have deceptively claimed a unanimity of opinion among the officials. Yet, obviously, they haven't consulted Daniel on this. And nor did they want to, because they had their scheme already set. Be careful to ensure that when you claim to speak on behalf of others, that you do so truthfully. And be wary of your own plans that may drive you to distort the truth. This decree that they wanted to put in place that was, it was possibly to make the king the exclusive mediator for the gods. Now, because Persia was a polytheistic kingdom and they often encouraged people to worship whatever gods they wanted, it's unlikely that this would have been a month-long ban on prayers to all gods. It could even be that they're wording this very carefully. You notice they, they don't actually mention the word prayer but they simply speak of petitions to those gods or anyone else. And whatever the case, it's obvious what it is that they're trying to do. You see, they know that Daniel serves the Most High King, and they know that his allegiance is unwavering. And by making it a law that cannot be changed, they know that they are setting a trap. Once again, here's another similarity to the book of Esther, some scholars think that, uh, uh, oh, sorry, this, this nature of the law being unchangeable is also a, a key part in the story of Esther. And some scholars think that this proves that Daniel isn't really a book written at the time that it claims to have been written, because we supposedly don't have any record of this ever being the case, that the law of the Medes and Persians was unchangeable. As I mentioned last week, it has happened more than once in history that this kind of claim about the Bible being unreliable on this or that issue because we don't have any evidence of it outside of the Bible, is, is, it's amazing how many times it has occurred that archaeological evidence has later disproven such a theory. But in this case, we actually do have evidence of this kind of thing happening anyway. It was generally the case that a king's decree could not be revoked. Sure, the king could do it. He is the king, after all. But he would do it at significant cost to his reputation. Now, one example of this is from the reign of another king, also named Darius, who lived a few decades after this. One Greek historian describes uh, this incident where the king executed a man that he knew to be innocent. And he says, immediately he repented, this is the king, and blamed himself as having greatly erred, but it was not possible to undo what was done by royal decree. And this is important to know because it is a key component of the story. The king, he foolishly signs this injunction, this decree, without properly considering what the implications might mean. As is often the case, our hasty actions and our unthinking judgments have more tragic consequences than we realize. That ought to make us humble 
and slower in our judgments. As the saying goes, fools rush in. At this point of the story, you can, you can feel the tension, right? Here is this setup. Here is this trap that is being laid for Daniel. And as readers of the story, we ask ourselves, what's he going to do? How is Daniel going to respond to this? You see, Daniel was at the top of his game. He was about to be promoted to the second highest position in the kingdom. And his next move is going to reveal who his true king is. Let's read from verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. What does this action tell us about Daniel? What do we see of his character? Well, we see a few things, all of which are things worth reflecting on for ourselves. Let me give you three. Firstly, Daniel continues to be faithful to God no matter the consequences. Despite all of his subordinates and all of his colleagues turning against him, driven by jealousy, Daniel is unfazed. Faithfulness to his God was of far greater importance to him than keeping his position or getting a promotion or getting whatever it is that he wanted. Is that how your life and your priorities are ordered? Which acts of faithfulness to God are likely to be the first ones to go in pursuit of something else? Or perhaps even more subtly, which would be the first ones that you would reason are not that important to God so that you can focus on your career or your family or school or whatever else it might be? Secondly, Daniel didn't make a big fuss about what he was doing. He didn't stand on the street corner and proclaim to everybody that he was boldly defying the king. Look at me, everybody. I'm going to pray. I don't care about this injunction. No. He continued on to simply be quietly faithful. And this has significant implications for us today. I had an interesting conversation with a Christian local teacher friend of mine just a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the push in the West and in Australia towards enforcement of using preferred gender pronouns. This is just one of many issues that Christians need to think carefully about. As I'm sure we're all aware, schools are one of the main front lines of ideological battle. This teacher that I was speaking to is teaching at a public school. Now, this is a vexed issue for many people as well as for Christians. And I know that not all Christians agree about how we best respond to this. But as far as I can tell, it seems to me like the right thing for Christians to do is to not use preferred pronouns. Because if we were to do so, we would be speaking things that are not true. But there are 
scores of situations where you might apply this principle in different ways. And I think this is something that we can do in the same spirit as Daniel. As I've said before, even though we may choose to engage in the, in the political process to bring about broader change and, and advocate and that sort of thing and, and seek for greater freedom of religion in our country, that's excellent, but our personal practice doesn't necessarily need to be something that we uh, must proclaim on the street corners. Living honestly doesn't mean that you must go out of your way to be offensive about it. I know that that will lead to awkward conversations and to potentially tricky situations, potentially even uh, uh, vocation-threatening situations. But this seems to me like one of those areas of faith that, faith that may be something that our culture uses against us. Perhaps you are facing this situation or something similar right now. Let me encourage you to keep talking with others in our church and talking to our elders about these things. I know that I would love to know how I can support you, how I can pray for you in these challenging times. But may we keep striving to be faithful to God. May we keep petitioning Him for wisdom and keep seeking to have excellent spirits through these challenging times. Now, I know that there's much more to be said about that. So let me encourage you to take that up over lunch or perhaps in question time and even beyond that. Well, finally, what did Daniel do? He prayed. And kids, do you know what else he did? He prayed and... Can you see it on the screen? It's on the second last line. Anyone? Prayed and... At least the ones who can read. The younger ones, I'm not expecting you guys to. Gave thanks. Thank you, Faith. That's right. Daniel prayed and gave thanks before his God. Three times a day, facing towards Jerusalem. You know, in 1 Kings chapter 8... King Solomon talks about the prayers of the people being towards the temple after he has just built it. Daniel is doing this, literally. And even though the temple has been, at this point, destroyed. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that Solomon makes a plea for the people of Israel and for their redemption and forgiveness if they were ever to be destroyed and carried off into exile. It's extremely likely that what Daniel did, uh, that this is what Daniel did, that he prayed towards Jerusalem in, in that great hope and great trust that God would, would return his people to the land. This was obviously his regular practice. As it says, he, as he did before. And yet Daniel didn't only pray, he also gave thanks. Brothers and sisters, do we, do we see our urgent need for forgiveness and redemption? Do we see that urgent need for our friends and family to be redeemed? That it drives us to consistent and persistent prayer. Don't give up. 
Perhaps you've been praying for a friend or a family member for decades, and there is no sign that they will be coming to Christ and to receive his redemption anytime soon. Do not give up. Daniel was in exile for decades, and he never lived to see the rebuilding of the temple, but he never stopped praying. He never stopped praying for the deliverance of his people. Pray for the forgiveness and the redemption of those who are lost in your life. And even in the midst of great opposition, recognize that there is always much to be thankful for. Thanksgiving in the midst of hardship is surely one of the ways that God enables us to endure through it. What do these things tell us about Daniel? They tell us that he trusted God even in the face of great opposition. And the heat of that opposition was about to get even hotter. Seven times hotter, one might even say. The officials who lay the trap for Daniel go looking for him to make sure that they can catch him in the act. You know, given that this was in his upper chamber and that windows back then were usually pretty small, it's likely that nobody would have even noticed that Daniel was, was praying unless someone was actually trying to actively catch him in it. And that's exactly what these men did. They take their report back to the king and they remind him once again of the injunction that he had given. And the king, not knowing what they're trying to do, well, he ties his own hands with his words by once again reiterating that this injunction cannot be revoked. Verse 13 is the tense climax of the first half of this story. The jealous officials, they pronounce what is effectively Daniel's execution sentence by reporting to the king what they have found. He is disobeying. What will happen? How is the God in whom Daniel trusts going to save him, going to deliver him from this? Well, that brings us to our second heading. Trust in the face of death. We love our martyrs, don't we? I mentioned a few, a few weeks ago, I don't know if the kids were in, I don't think you were... We shared about a few of them, the, uh, what do they call them, the Oxford Martyrs of Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, and Nicholas Ridley. That's because being a martyr shows that you are so dedicated to your beliefs and so convinced of them that you are willing to die for them. That's the kind of conviction and trust in God that we all as Christians desire to have, that we pray that we will have if we were ever faced with this situation. And that's the kind of trust that Daniel had. But before we get to him, we get a bit of insight into the king. Darius showing the same kind of esteem for Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar also had for Daniel, realizes the trap that has been laid. I wonder what him laboring till the sun goes down to rescue him must have looked like. Did he, did he call in a bunch of lawyers to see whether you know, they could interpret his decree in a slightly different way? 
Did he bring in you know, the political scientists to see how much of his reputation would take a hit if he decided to revoke the law? Whatever it was, he tried to find a way out for Daniel. As he deliberated over this, you can see the glee. You can almost see it in the words as they once again remind the king of the irrevocable nature of the injunction. It cannot be changed. It cannot be changed. I don't know about you, but I picture the king being just slightly irritated by that. Maybe even more than slightly, given what happens to them in verse 24. Let's jump down to that verse very briefly. You see, these officials who tried to trap Daniel, they end up receiving a gruesome end, not just for themselves, but also for their families. Now, it's important to realize that the Bible isn't commending this punishment. It does not say that God punished them this way. Such punishment was actually, uh, to include the family, was, was a, a practice of the Persians, a known one. Though it is true that we see Achan's family receiving punishment in Joshua chapter 7. In the case of Achan, it very well uh, may be that his family was actually complicit in his sin, hiding the things that Achan was hiding and therefore received the same judgment. But also, as Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 reminds us, God visits the sin of the fathers on the next generations. Joshua 7 and the sin of Achan very well may be one of these extraordinary instances where the great sin of the father led to the end of his legacy and his line. The key difference between these two, Achan and what we see here in chapter 6, is that one was executed by God's people, while the other was by a pagan king. And given that Daniel doesn't give us any further comment, that should make us slower to read it as God's judgment upon them. But let us return to our story. As the king recognizes that there is nothing he can do for Daniel, he gives the command. Let's read from verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, if the king really wanted to make some kind of great sacrifice, I mean, he's the king. He probably could have done so in order to save Daniel's life. There is no doubt that he has genuine care for Daniel here, expressed in his attempts to deliver him and his hope that Daniel's God would deliver him and his response of fasting and not being able to sleep. Clearly, there is, there is a relationship there. But he wasn't quite ready and willing to give up his own life for Daniel's. He wasn't willing to say, no, no, Daniel, you walk free and I will take on that punishment. 
He wasn't willing. But he obviously still cared for him. The den of lions are more likely to be like a pit in the ground, given that the stone was laid on top of it, was sealed by the king. Interestingly, this little detail tells us that there is no possible way for somebody else to have tampered with what was inside. You know, if Daniel was going to be delivered, it would have to be through some kind of sign or wonder of God's. We don't actually get any of Daniel's words or actions in this section. But given that we've just seen uh, him praying and continuing to show and demonstrate that trust in God, and what we see of him in this next section, it's not hard to see that Daniel trusted the Lord even in the face of death. You've got to wonder what it must have been like to spend the whole evening with ravenous lions. Maybe he named them. Maybe he had a conversation with God's angel who came down and saved him. Of course, we don't have any of those details. Kids, you are free to imagine what might have happened in the den as Daniel was there with lions that didn't eat him. But we do know one thing for sure. God saves those who trust him. And that brings us to our final heading. Trust because God saves. Trust because God saves. After a rather sleepless night, the king, he rushes to the lion's den in the morning. And again, you see the relationship that he had with Daniel. As he cries out in anguish, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? This is the moment of truth. Kids, if you know what a cliffhanger in your, the, whatever shows you watch, Ah, uh, it's right here. Did God save him? And we imagine the camera panning towards the pit as it slowly makes its way over to see whether Daniel is alive or in a hundred pieces. Did God have the power to deliver him from certain death? Let's read Daniel's response. O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before you and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. God delivered Daniel. He saved him. He sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions and they did not devour him. But what is interesting here is the reason why God did it. Notice that in verse 22. Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. You know, as, as gospel-believing Christians, statements like this in the Bible can uh, sometimes make us a little bit nervous. You know, our instinct is to say, no, no, salvation doesn't come by works, it's by grace. Well, the first thing to recognize is that it has come by grace. God certainly didn't have to save Daniel from the lion's den just because he was blameless. That's not an automatic transaction that you can bank on. And secondly, to be blameless is not the same thing as being perfectly holy as God is. 
This is not suggesting that Daniel was free of sin. As the Old Testament sometimes does, to be blameless is describing a commitment to God and a diligence in obeying Him. In the same way that Noah was delivered from the flood because God found favor with him, and yet he was also considered to be blameless, so it is here in Daniel. And this makes sense, doesn't it? The first half of this story takes great care to show how Daniel had an excellent spirit. That is because of how Daniel lived before God and his king. God delivered him. But as we also see in verse 23, it's also because he trusted in his God. The king was exceedingly glad. And he goes on in the rest of this chapter to decree to all people about how great Daniel's God is. We'll actually get to that final section of chapter 6 next week. But look here in verse 23 at that reason that no kind of harm was found on Daniel. Because he had trusted in his God. Now, now we need to make sure that we don't reverse engineer this verse in the wrong direction. Right? This verse is not saying that anyone who trusts in God will be saved from the lion's den or some other life-threatening situation. I do not encourage you, if you are ever in that situation, to think that that is what's going to happen. And he's simply making the point that this is one of the reasons why Daniel was delivered. Daniel trusted in God and that trust was met with God's deliverance and salvation. Daniel trusted that God could and would save him. Brothers and sisters, do you trust in the Savior? Do you trust in the Deliverer? Kids, you are not too young to trust in the Savior. And do you trust that He can deliver you from the pit? That He can deliver you from the lion's mouth? Now, I'd say the odds are that most, if not everyone in this room, isn't going to be at risk of being thrown into a den of lions. I'm not even sure if that even happens anywhere in the world today. So what kind of deliverance am I talking about? Well, I'm using that phrase in a metaphorical sense. And that's because the Apostle Paul does the same in his second letter to Timothy. But the Lord, Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, Paul might just be using a turn of phrase or perhaps using this as an illustration. But in the same way that he shows that other parts of the Old Testament are types of Christ, they are shadows of Christ, I think that's what he's actually getting to here. As God saved David from the lions. And as God shut the mouths of the lions in the den that Daniel was thrown into, so also does God save him. 
You see, these deliverances by God for His people in the Old Testament, they were types and shadows of the greater deliverance that is to come in Jesus, the great deliverer. They would be fulfilled in the one who would deliver all who trust in Christ from eternal death, from the eternal pit of the lions, from the eternal pit of hell. Paul's not talking about literal lions. And one of the reasons I think he's hinting at this is because of the verse that follows. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is pulling that theme of of God's deliverance and rescue through the Old Testament, through David, through Daniel, and finally through Christ to show how God now delivers all who trust in Him. Paul trusts in Christ. Why? What will the Lord do in addition to rescuing him from every evil deed? He will bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. That promise holds true for every believer who trusts in Jesus alone for salvation. Every single one. I had a couple of conversations this week about how hard it can sometimes be to trust that God will save. We talked about how it's one thing to believe that God will bring us safely to His heavenly kingdom, that there is an eternal uh, paradise awaiting us. And then it is another to live as though that were true. If only God could let us experience that heavenly kingdom for a day. If only he could transport us into that realm for just 24 hours and then bring us back. Then this temporary life that is here today and is gone tomorrow would be a far different experience. Yet God hasn't granted us that. And so in this life, we we wrestle with our flesh. We fight the battle over our hearts and minds as they seek to trust in everything else other than God. And we, and we contend for that faith, that good news, that message of the gospel that God has delivered us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, He is the one who can deliver you. He delivered Daniel and his friends from the wrath of the king. He rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And he saved Daniel from the lion's den. He silences the opposition. And he will bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. That is the great hope of salvation that we have. And as surely as God delivered Daniel because he trusted in him, he will surely deliver every single one who trusts in his son. 
to save us from our pit of sin and death. How? Because Daniel foreshadowed the coming of the king who wouldn't just lob a wish into the pit hoping that our God would somehow save us. No, the greater king would come and he would also have officials in high places who were jealous of him, who were plotting and scheming about how to kill him. And his tomb would also be sealed with a stone and his would even be guarded by soldiers to ensure that the only way possible for anything to happen would be through God working some kind of sign or wonder. Brothers and sisters, this king, he would not be powerless to deliver. No, he would enter the very den of the lions on our behalf. And instead of calling upon an angel to save him, or even 12 legions of angels to save him, he would allow them to tear him apart. Jesus went down into the pit of death and received the wrath, the judgment that you and I deserve for our sin. So that by turning from sin and trusting in Him, we might be delivered from it. He took our place. And because He was blameless, and He was blameless in the truly perfect sense, and He trusted in His God, God raised Him from the dead and has exalted Him to the highest place over all creation and over all people. Friends, if you are here this morning and you are wondering who will save you from this body of death and you have not yet turned to Jesus, if you are wondering why the pit of life just feels like you're going to be swallowed up by it, God is calling you to trust in the Deliverer, to trust in the Savior. Turn away from all other kings and all other things and trust in the great king. And brothers and sisters, if you're feeling like the lions are prowling and they are ready to pounce, perhaps it feels to you like you are in the pit Or perhaps you even feel like the lions, they're already gnawing at your leg. If you feel like having an excellent spirit and being an excellent witness to those around you is too burdensome because, you know, work is boring and people are difficult. If you feel like you keep putting your own desires above faithfulness to God, prioritizing promotions and whatever else. If you feel like you don't have the strength to fight off the lionizing of anti-Christian social agendas. If it seems to you like you're in the pit of life and the pit of death and you're not even sure that God really will rescue you. That it seems to you like your faith is hanging by a thread. If you're in such despair... Perhaps it feels like God has left you to be torn apart by the metaphorical lions. 
keep putting your trust in him. Even though you might fail him, he will not fail you. He will not turn away a single one who turns to him. Keep putting your trust in the deliverer. Saving faith trusts in Christ and in Him alone. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot trust in ourselves or our own abilities or even our own blamelessness, however good that might be. We must continue to remember that deliverance comes by trusting in the deliverer every step of the way. Jesus gave his life so that you might be rescued from the lion's mouth. Will you put your trust in him? Let me finish with a word of prayer from this book, The Valley of Vision. Please join with me. O Holy Father, you have freely given your Son. O Divine Son, you have freely paid my debt. O Eternal Spirit, you have freely bid me come. O Triune God, you do freely grace me with salvation. Prayers and tears could not suffice to pardon my sins, nor anything less than atoning blood. But my believing is my receiving, for a thankful acceptance is no paying of the debt. What did you see in me? That I, a poor, diseased, despised sinner, should be clothed in your bright glory. That a creeping worm should be advanced to this high state. That one lately groaning, weeping, dying should be as full of joy as my heart can hold. That a being of dust and darkness should be taken like Mordecai from captivity and set next to the king. It should be lifted like Daniel from a den and be made ruler of princes and provinces. Who can fathom immeasurable love? As far as the rational soul exceeds the senses, so does the spirit exceed the rational in its knowledge of you. You have given me understanding to compass the earth, measure the sun, moon, stars, universe, but above all, to know you, the only true God. I marvel that the finite can know the infinite, here a little, afterwards in full-orbed truth, Now I know but a small portion of what I shall know, here in part, there in perfection, here a glimpse, there a glory. To enjoy you is life eternal, and to enjoy is to know. Keep me in the freedom of experiencing your salvation continually. Amen.